people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Ego Fest 13. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Morris Bershtinsky. How you doing, Morris? Ego is not a dirty word. Ego is not a dirty word. Ego is not a dirty word. Don't you believe what you've seen or you've heard? I've been wanting to do that for years. Thank you for having me on. Much appreciated. I'm very glad that you're here. This very excited. It's been a while since I've done one of these, so I'm glad to to be sharing some time with you, answering some questions from the listeners, and just yeah, kind of peeling back the curtain a little bit on the projection booth. I think everybody knows how the sausage is made right now. So if you if you like sausage making, come on in, sit down, enjoy yourself. We're here to um, display our egos in all their glory. We're here to talk about movies and the projection booth and all sorts of other good stuff. So, yes, grab your vodka, brandy, beer, lemonade, coffee, tea, beverage of choice, and just and we will try to keep you entertained as best we can over the next um, period of time. I want to start off by saying congratulations for getting to episode 600. Oh, thank you, sir. And the fact that you picked one of my favorite films of all time, Local Hero, just I was ecstatic and that you got Peter Regat on. And since that episode came out, I went and bought Jonathan Melville's book. Just finished reading that a couple of days ago. Absolutely loved it. Right. Isn't it good? It's really, really, really good because I think, you know, you read some film books. I mean, I, I don't think actually that I've read another film book that was focused on the one film, but I might have read about movements or actors or, or the like and this one he made a beautiful blend of this is what happens in the story and this is what's happening in the scene he's such a good writer how he blended everything and the range of people who he got to speak to i mean it would have been wonderful if um, he would have had Knopfler show up to speak to him because i love that soundtrack it would have been great to have heard a bit more from him i think he used like some archival writings or something like that from him and i think the I think that the interviews with Bill Forsyth himself were like from a few years ago, but at least it was for this book. But yeah, no, a beautifully written book about one of my favorite films. And what it got me to do as well was dig out the film that came after. I mean, everyone talks about Gregory's Girl, which was, I was Gregory. I grew up, I felt like I was Gregory. So Bill Forsyth's films, they mean a lot to me, but I hadn't seen his film comfort and joy which came out immediately after local hero uh since i think original cinema release would have been 84 85 or something like that and i don't know if you've seen that one mike i have not no it's a delight it's really really wonderful know how you describe it maybe the godfather if 
if uh, the Corleone family was into ice cream confection. It's, no, maybe not really, but just these two rival ice cream companies getting violent with each other, and it turns out that a, a local radio personality has to get involved in between and sort the mess out. It's an Ealing film without being an Ealing film, which is really something you could say about all of Bill Forsyth's films. But that first run of four films, that sinking feeling, Gregory's Girl, which I've watched more times than I can recall, Local Hero and Comfort and Joy are all just critically, they're all essential films uh, that everyone should see. I haven't seen his American films. I believe Housekeeping is really wonderful. Haven't seen that. But I did see, I think what might have been, I'm not sure if it's the last film that he made or second to last film, uh, called Gregory's Two Girls, his um, sequel, well, sort of sequel to Gregory's Girl. And I really don't like to get negative on a podcast, so I won't go any further, but did come away thinking, Bill, what were you thinking? Anyway, no more on that. I will have to arrange an episode with you and Jonathan on it sometime so you guys can talk. I'd love to, love to do that. Love to do that. There's, there was one thing I don't remember if Jonathan mentioned this in the projection booth episode or if it was something that he said in the film, but it was interesting that one of the things that is mentioned is about, you know, the comparison between his films and the Ealing style of film. But there's talk specifically of whiskey galore. Bill Forsyth had said, we don't want to use whiskey galore as a role model for local hero because it sort of presents too much of the stereotype of the Scottish people and, and, oh, hoots to the mon and that sort of thing. He said he wanted to present something a little bit more honest, a little bit more, just a little bit more honest than what was being portrayed in something like Whiskey Galore. And I don't know, I, now I'm reluctant to go back to, I adored that film, Whiskey Galore, but um, I don't want to look at it through new eyes now. Anyway, so me rambling on just to say that congratulations on episode 600. And I was so thrilled that that, that Local Hero was the film that you picked. Just such a beautiful film. That was just serendipity as well. Like that wasn't even on the docket. And then Jonathan's book came out and it was actually Rob St. Mary who tipped me off to Jonathan's book. I knew he was writing it because of us talking, but I didn't know it was out. So Rob sends me that. And then I'm just like, Hey, Jonathan, it looks like we're going to have to talk. And he was like, yeah, sounds great. So I contacted Rob. I was like, you want to come on an episode? We'll do this. And Jonathan, you want to be on here? And then I didn't even use Jonathan for the Rieger connection. I found his personal address and emailed him and he got right back to me and was like, oh yeah, sure. No problem. And I was like, wow. Okay. So I was really happy about that. Peter Rieger was such a good conversationalist. He, he didn't want to hold back. He wanted to tell us a great raconteur. He really was. Heard him on two other podcasts. It was Gilbert's podcast. He was on and on Talking Sopranos. Uh, where he talked about his time as in his role as I think the congressman who got whipped or belted by Tony Soprano in rather rather nastily, but um, great speaker, great raconteur. So um, congrats on uh, getting him. He's certainly a, a, a big catch. But I like the fact that he's saying, "Well, I'm here. I'm happy to talk." You know, not one of the not one of these guests that you have to pull information out of. Yeah, I was on a interview recently where it was basically, I think I asked like three questions and the guy just went and I was like, okay, that's fine by me. The best type of guest. I'll give you time for follow-up questions in a minute, but I'm going to talk now. And I'm like, 
that's great. You go right ahead. I'm going to turn my mute on and I'm just going to sit and listen and enjoy myself. So, so nothing like, um, and I keep forgetting his name, but blast of silence. Oh, <laughs> Alan Barron. <laughs> Alan, Bar- Alan Barron. That, that episode goes down in projection booth law. Listeners out there go search that episode out. Uh, Mike even gives a warning before the interview starts. I, ha- I can't edit this one because you need to hear, you need to hear what goes on, but th- it was, it was entertaining. It was a train wreck, but it was okay. It, it, I mean, it was entertaining. Yeah. Well, it is the season too, because I consider that a great Christmas film. It all takes place. Yes. Christmas. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. I was, um, on an Australian film Facebook group the other day and someone went and pointed out, and this is relative in relation to our very first, or well, sorry, my very first episode with you on the projection booth is that Wake and Fright is a Christmas film. Right. Yeah. He's on his uh, break. He's on his end of year break, but it's the middle of summer. And I mean, even though I live here, I'm still sort of bombarded with the image of European, North America, well, basically Northern Hemisphere Christmas. It's snow. It's this, it's that. The only reminder that we ever have about the Southern Hemisphere Christmas is from the Paul Kelly song, How to Make Gravy, with, which is all about great song. I'll let the listeners go out there and listen to that, but great storytelling. And it's set in a really hot Christmas. But generally, I, we don't tend to think of it. And reading this Facebook post saying, yep, there's a Christmas film. Oh, yep, completely right. Completely right. Complete with slaughtering kangaroos and and uh, and throwing up on um, on someone's lawn. Merry Christmas, folks. Good times. Mm. Yeah, I tried to get Rieger for our Chili Seeds of Winter episode because he has a good role in that as well, but that didn't work out. So I'm glad it worked out with Local Hero. And then with Chili Scenes, that's coming out now on Criterion. So I'm very happy about that. And I hope maybe they get, I think it was Daniel Kramer who tipped me off to that. I'm not sure if he probably won't be involved in the release, but I think they will have... Mark Metcalf, Amy Robinson, and Griffin Dunn doing special features for it. So that's pretty cool. Did you ever get Griffin Dunn? For, yeah. For the yeah. <laughs> I talked to him while he was for that episode while he was basically waiting outside for a cab. So it was one of those very noisy interviews. And I was like, I can call you back in a few. No, no, that's good. I'm all right. And then I've been emailing him ever since because I told him I'd like to do a episode about after hours. And he was just like, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's coming out on Criterion soon. And this was like years and years ago. So that got out there into these forums and stuff. And everybody's like mad at me, like, well, on Mike White's projection booth, it said that uh, it's going to be out on Criterion soon. Where is it? Where is it? So, and then it was so weird. I, I emailed Amy Robinson to say, Hey, I still, I want to do this episode, regardless of whether it's going to be on Blu ray anytime soon. I want to do this episode. And she writes back and goes, I cannot speak about this movie. And I was just like, what? (laughs) Oh, my Lord. She was a little weird anyway. I mean, like, I had to cut out a lot of her interview because she was getting so mad at me because, you know, how I I do it. I, like, try to warm people up and, like, get them comfortable before I just dive in and, like, tell me about Chili Scenes of Winter. But I was talking to her about stuff and – she was an actress first before she became a producer, and she does not want to talk about her acting career at all and just got really offended by it. I was just, like to the point where she was about to like hang up on me. And I was like, oh, whoa, 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 you know, it's okay. We'll just cut right to that. Like, don't worry. But yeah, I thought, okay, well, this, she's a producer of After Hours. She'll love to talk about. No, 
I cannot talk about this. And maybe that's a good sign. Maybe that means that the Criterion will come out. But And then the writer of the film, he's being all strange about it, too, because I think he either was sued or accused of plagiarism. He had, like, listened to some story on the radio, and then it ended up that details of that story ended up going into the screenplay. And it was pointed out to him later on, and he was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe I did this. And now he looks, he thinks he looks like a plagiarist, and people just pick on him all the time for this. And so he writes me this super long emotional email, and I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you. But if you're uncomfortable coming on, don't worry about it. I'm not about to attack you. I think my listeners are intelligent enough that they're not going to you know, think bad thoughts about you or anything or be like, Mike, why didn't you say this stuff? You know, it's like... Let the person speak and listen to him. You spoke to the lead actor in Trouble Man, Robert Hooks, and you sent me the interview before we did the episode so I could listen to you know what his thoughts were. And one point, I don't remember what the question was, but there was something that you asked that he didn't quite like. And he said to you, why do you ask that, Mike White? You went and wrote me, what do you think? Should I keep that in or should I cut that out? And I said, yeah, cut that out, cut that bit out. He was real mad about uh, when I talked about him having a lead in a film. And like basically it was like, you know, Trouble Man is named after him. And I was just like, oh, you're the lead of this film. He's like, I was the lead. I was above the title in these three movies. Weren't you paying attention? I was like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like, All right, dude. Mike White, people out there, listeners, you're getting an insight into what it's like to host a podcast, having to deal with the egos, not not Mike's ego fest ego, having to deal with actors' egos and producers' egos and people behind the scenes' egos. Ego, but ego's not a dirty word. Shirley Strawn sang that, so it must be true. Let's go for the listeners. They're, they're keen, they're anxious. From Mike Trippiano, love the show and also the Barney Miller podcast. Have you ever done a show about an American werewolf in London? If not, I'd really love to hear that one covered. The Howling, Excalibur, and the original Valley Girl would also be fun. I'm probably showing my Gen X membership with these requests. Keep up the great work, Mike. So we have not done a show about American Werewolf in London, though we did do a show about The Howling. So that is available. We did that quite a few years ago, and that was Gary Bradner, the author, and I want to say Joe Dante was on that as well. Uh, poor Gary Bradner, he is no longer with us, so I always feel bad when people I interview pass away. He was really good, re- very informative. Excalibur, I would like to do that one of these days. I would like to go back down to Indiana and go through the Borman boxes again. And the original Valley Girl, I think I was trying to get the director of that to talk to me, but I haven't had any luck with that yet. So maybe if I ever get her or who's that guy that's in there? Nicholas Cage, I think it is. If he ever wants to come on the show, he's welcome to. Who, who's he again? Original name was actually uh, Coppola. So he's uh, never heard yeah, of him. One of those. Uh, what are they calling them now? Nepo babies? I don't get this new term. Nepo, this is serious, mum. Tism. That was a, a Melbourne band, Tism. This is serious, mum. So Nepo, this is serious, mum. You know, I watched my first Cage film in ages this year, one of his recent ones called Pig, and really, really, really good. I mean, look, I've not watched, I've not watched Mandy. I've not watched 
it's Cage being crazy, but in a in a good way. But I watched Pig. I think that was on Canopy, Canopy or Beamer film. I'm not sure which one. And I thought, all right, I'll give this a go, and absolutely loved it. Um, he only did the unhinged bit just at one moment in the film. Just, but the rest of it, it was really, really controlled, and it was a, it was a bit of a heartbreaking story. But yeah, I recommend that. I recommend that one very much. People haven't seen that. Have you seen the unbearable weight of massive talent? I have not. I have not. Is that is that a recommendation from you? I would recommend it. Yeah, I think it could be a lot better. But it's good for what it is. Like, there's a few things where I'm just like, ah, I wish you would tweak this and tweak that. Like, it all takes place, or almost all of it takes place on an island. So you kind of aren't in the world with Nicolas Cage that much. He gets a visit. This isn't ruining anything, but he gets a visit from Sailor from Wild at Heart. Oh, really? And I was really hoping that he was going to talk to more of his previous characters. I was really hoping that Cameron Poe was going to show up or just some of the other characters that he's played over the years, the memorable ones. I mean, even H.I. McDonough. But it was odd, too, because there were times where they would talk about a movie, but they would never say the title of the movie. And you just had to know his filmography enough to know, oh, they're talking about Face Off right now or they're talking about this movie. So... But yeah, there was some interesting things in there. And Pedro Pascal, I really like him, and he was really good in it. Have you seen Birdie? It's been a long time, but yeah. Because that was, I think, maybe the first time I saw him in a film. That would have been, I don't know, late 80s or something like that. My wife, uh, well, we're just going out at the time, so my girlfriend at the time, now my wife, recommended Birdie's. I think I read the book first on her recommendation and then watched the film I mean, they changed the setting. I think the book might have been set in World War II and the film was set during the Vietnam War. But both Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine were absolutely superb, fantastic film. Yeah, all these, all these years of you know, hearing stories about Cage doing all these unhinged roles and going crazy, I thought, really? Because there was a time where he didn't do that, where he you know, used all his acting chops. Yeah, his GQ interview is really good. They have that series, which I'm totally envious of, which is, uh, what was it? Actors talk about their iconic roles or something. It's kind of weird to me because they do it in non-chronological order. I would probably order things more chronologically, but they just seem to like cherry pick stuff and then they just go through almost randomly. And hearing him talk about his decisions behind some of his roles and he realized like, Oh, he's actually like taking a lot of time to think about what he's doing with some of these things. His discussion of his character in Moonstruck, I was just like, Oh wow, you really put a lot of work in this. That that's amazing. Just, I forgot how great he is in that. I lost my hand. I lost my bride. Johnny has his hand. Johnny has his bride. You want me to take my heartbreak, put it away and forget that hand up, that was an homage to the crazy scientist doctor in Metropolis. And then they like showed a clip, but I was like, yeah, you're right. That's, that's what he's doing. That's pretty cool. I apologize. Uh, uh, Metropolis is still a list of shame for me. I only saw it a few years ago and it was because it was available on the big screen. So I went and saw like this restored version where they had clips that they found, like, or sections that they found down in Brazil that looked beat to shit, but it was 
wonderful to see it. And I kind of like that they were beat to shit a little bit because then you could tell, oh, this is the Brazilian footage. This is what everybody else has seen for all these years. And just being able to go, oh, wow, how could this movie survive without this footage? It's amazing. I remember in um, the 80s when that film became back in vogue because Giorgio Moroder had written a score for it and Queen's Radio Gaga film clip used footage from it. So it became the in thing again. But um, the thing is, I've seen a bunch of other Fritz Lang films and M is certainly in my favorite films of all time. Don't, I mean, for a film made in 1929 and it still feels like a punch in the stomach. I mean, my God, it's almost a hundred years old. Do like Fritz Lang, but yeah, my shame. I haven't seen what I guess most people sort of consider his most iconic film. But there's so many things that I haven't seen. I mean, I'm finally I'm going to see Murnau's Sunrise in about I guess about a month or so now, eh, maybe a little bit less. They're doing a screening of it here at a little theater with organ accompaniment, and I'm so excited to see that. There was a time in. No, but we started up this thing called Moonlight Cinema, which was basically, you know, sitting in the rural botanic gardens in Melbourne. And there would, they would show like for the first couple of summers, they would show old black and white films. I mean, after that, they realized to make money, they had to show contemporary films. But for the first two summers, it was all old black and white films. And I got to see, I think, Ben Hur, uh, like a 19, original 1920s, whatever. Year it was version of Ben Hur, uh, where people died in the chariot race. But one time I went to see the cabinet of Dr. Calgary and Nosferatu as a double, and they had an organ. Well, they had an organ accompanist, and it was almost like he wasn't watching the film. So in a creepy bit, we're getting and at the and at the lighter moments, it was some discordant organ chord. And, and I thought, does this guy know what he's doing or is he deliberately taking the mickey? I just hope for your sake that when you do get to see the film that you've got an organist who's actually watched the film or is watching the film as he does it. But Yeah, that's one thing I miss. I used to go down to the Maryland Film Festival and I think it was Saturday or Sunday morning because they would do very smart because they had these milestones so it was like i think it was saturday morning they would do a 3d film like an original locked projector 3d film and then sunday morning they would do a silent film with they would actually get the alloy orchestra to come in and do the accompaniment for these silent films which was just amazing Saturday night, they would always have John Waters come in and he would have a pick and they would show things like, I think it was almost always on film. He would do an intro and then uh, talk about it afterwards, a little Q&A, those kind of things, which is always embarrassing. The questions that get asked in those, you know, it's like, hey, I have a microphone, I'm a star and I'm going to try to impress you. And it's like... No, you're not. Sit down. Yeah, Sunday night, of course, the awards and all that kind of stuff. But having those like big three events, I was fine just going in for a weekend, doing that. And, you know, even if I just saw three films, which of course I saw a lot more, but if I saw those three programs, I was more than happy. Apropos of nothing, but just while we're talking about uh, like different types of film festivals, I remember there was a time where you spoke on the show and you sort of pointed me to this film. Film itself was about old cinemas, some that had been 
hadn't been used in years, a handful that was still just barely hanging on because they were run by film buffs. But there was one part of it where they were talking about nitrate prints. And uh, isn't there a nitrate film festival of sorts? Yes, there is. Yeah, it takes place at the George Eastman House over in Rochester, New York, every, I think it's the early part of June. And I went over there this year, and it was fantastic. Do films shown on nitrate, do they actually really look that much better? There are some films that they show that are really beat up, and it's like, we can probably show this like five more times because they know that the actual stock is degrading no matter what care they take. And by showing it in a projector, it wears stuff out a little bit more. So there are some things where it's just like, okay, this looks kind of beat up, but in in certain areas, especially around the real changes and stuff, it looks even worse than it does. But then there are other ones that just are absolutely pristine, just gorgeous stuff, like um, their copy of Rope. We watched a, a version of Rope this year, and it felt like you could walk into the screen. It just was so clean and clear and just so rich and a lot of times, you know, like when I think nitrate, I think black and white most of the time. And with that, it's like, it feels like it, the screen is just shining. You know, you can see the silver in it and it just feels so magical. But with rope, it was obviously it was color. And yeah, it just felt like you could walk right into that living room and hang out with those murderers and hear them talk and watch uh, Jimmy Stewart just tear them apart and make them super nervous. God, that's a film I haven't watched in years and years. Might have to dig out my uh, my Hitchcock box set tonight to to rewatch that. But I think like my my one of my sisters was a big Hitchcock fan, and she had like copies on VHS years and years ago of Rebecca and Rope, and I think some of the British films. Yeah, but Rope was one that I watched long, long time ago. It was so nice because it was my friend, Jeff. He was turning 50. All my high school friends are turning 50 this year, except for one who skipped a grade. So he turns 15 January. And it was so great that like when we were talking about setting this up, which was probably about a year ago right now, it was probably around like December, January of, of, of 21 going into 22. And I was like, emailed him and I was like, Oh, did you see the nitrate film festival is playing again? Do you want to try to go again? Because it was, you know, we had gone prior to the pandemic. So 2019 we had gone. And I was like, the one thing is though, it's, it's right around your birthday. In fact, it is your birthday. You know, like I understand if you're, you're turning 50, if you want to stay home, but he was like, no, no, I would love to spend my birthday with you. So I was just really super touched with about that. So nice. We drove out to Rochester, just had a great time, just bullshitting the entire trip. It was wonderful. Stayed at this great Airbnb, just went down to the movie theater and just watched movie after movie after movie. Uh, it was just wonderful. And like, he, Jeff isn't the movie guy that I am. So he would be like, well, tell me about this. Tell me about this. Tell me. And I was just like, oh, wow, you're making me feel so special. This is so nice. <laughs> and just that he chose to spend his time with me. And then on his birthday, it Itself. It's like, okay, between movies, I'm going to take you out to dinner. After the movies, I'm going to take you out drinking. So it was just a really nice time. Like, for, you know, we've been friends since we were in junior high together. So it was wonderful. I get so sloppily sentimental when I hear stories like that. Long, <laughs> long time friendships. 
my I have a long time friendship, which I'm I'm going to bring up purely because it is still sort of film related. I've got this friend called Rob who we met each other in the early nineties. I think a couple of mutual friends introduced us. Said, "Listen, you're just going to you guys are going to get along the best." On the first meeting, we spent the entire time just quoting Groucho Marx at each other. He's a big, big Marx Brothers fan like I am. And like every time we see each other, he still will put his hands up like this, pretending like he's holding a cigar and do the Groucho Marx walk. You know, I think though to this day, I don't think that we've ever actually watched a Marx Brothers film together. We do watch a lot of films together, but not a, a Marx Brothers film, which is very, very unusual. But anyway, Rob, if you're out there listening, let's make that happen soon. So do we have any more questions? Yes, we do. There's a fellow called Dallas Norvell. Do you want to? Hi, Mike. This is Dallas, longtime listener and Patreon supporter. Uh, I have a few questions for you. Uh, let me start with when you're trying to get an interview, is there any way we as your audience can help you to get certain interviews? Do you think us pinging people on social media would actually work or against you in those efforts? It might help. I've never actually tried that. For that first episode that I did on the projection booth, and I said to you, hey, do you have Jack Thompson? And you had, who did you have? You had Buckley, the, the editor, and who else? You had the director on Brain Fire. Ted Kotcheff, yeah. Ted, you, had, you had Ted Kotcheff. But I said, you need Jack Thompson because that was his second film and his first really big film. And and Jack Thompson was like the biggest actor in Australia in the 70s and, and the early 80s, really meant something. And you said, well, how would you go about getting him? And I said, leave it to me. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I did a, I did a search. Actually, the first thing that came up, Jack Thompson Agency, and the first thing that came up was a musical agency because he was working as a blues harmonica player around Sydney. So he had musical representation. I thought, that sounds great, but I probably better try and find an acting representation. So I went and wrote to them and said, hi, I represent the Projection Booth podcast. Maybe you've heard of us. And I was surprised how accommodating they were. And then I came back to you and said, hey, I said, wow, that's that's great. I said, oh, want anyone else? And you said, yeah, can you get me Bruce Spence? And I thought, oh, you really meant. I thought, okay, for some reason, they took me seriously again. So there you go. Well, maybe I've missed my calling, you know, um, agent to the podcast. Oh, I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. That was so good. I was so happy. And yeah, to be able to talk, I mean, Jack Thompson was so freaking nice. He was lovely. You know, he ended up sending me that CD that he was talking about. I mean, it arrived like quite a few weeks after we recorded, but it ended up showing up. So I'm just like, wow, that's really cool that you actually sent me something from Australia. That's that's terrific. He was uh, very giving in his answers. And I remember I said to you, ask him about his poet, his passion for poetry. And that's for the listeners out there who haven't heard the Wake and Fried episode. Mike does ask. Uh, Jack Thompson about his passion for poetry and particularly the works of Banjo Patterson. And he'd gone and recorded some CDs, I think with musical backing, but of him reading that poetry. And he's, that's right. He's, he said to you, Oh, would you like me to send you a, uh, a CD or two? And said, Oh, yeah. And you weren't sure that it was going to come. And lo and behold, four weeks later, there it is. There are always those questions that really unlock people, or a lot of times there are, and that was that question. So you totally set me up for success. People growing up in the 70s and the 80s, he was like an acting hero. And I always loved it. I know it's a film that you love as well, Mike. It was this 
the some of us uh, the film he did with russell crowe because all his films in the 70s were about him as a macho character uh which was while australia was sort of going through this film renaissance in the 70s i mean yes you were your picnics at hanging rocks and the last waves and the like but a lot of australian cinema either through sort of the, the tits and ass type films or through the what does it mean to be a man type films that's a lot what a lot of australian cinema of the 70s was about while we're trying to sort of define what do we stand for what are we like is this film a reflection on what the australian psyche was and it's un- unusual sort of coming back to wake and fright because at the time people said that's not us and then the rest of the 70s we make all these films that said no in fact that is us so films that jack thompson did like peterson and the club and sunday too far away and there's another film i don't recall i don't think he was in it called the last of the knuckle men but that's one i'd highly recommend that was his image through a lot of that period and then he goes and makes his film the sum of us which really turns that image on its head and it came at the right time um so but um, yeah no as you say beautiful guy i've had a lot of luck with australian talent i have to say i mean between the the folks that you've hooked me up with and then being able to track down ralph the hare or any of the folks from the mad max films i mean all of them were very willing to talk which was so nice it's just a matter of but yeah everybody that i've reached out to in australia has been really apt to get back to me and just very grateful to talk which is wonderful i can't remember i think you got adam elliott as well for uh our mary and max episode yeah didn't you? Yeah. Yep. yeah yeah it feels like to me like the, the british and the australians seem to take my requests more seriously than any other countries do Maybe the Canadians. If I can track down the Canadians, they might be, because they're so polite. So rather long answer to a rather short question. But yes, if you know anyone out there who, um, who's involved in the film world, then yeah, reach, reach out to them. You know, tell them, tell them the projection booth. They ask great questions. They'll make you, they'll make you look good. Yeah. That kind of harassment or that kind of contact, I should say would be greatly appreciated. Like if you, you're like, oh, well, you know, I happen to know, I don't know, Ron Howard or whatever. It's like, okay, cool. Yeah. Hook us up. You know, we'll talk, but I don't know as far as like tweeting stuff at somebody and just like, you should do an interview with Mike White, especially if it's like a random person that I'm not interested in. Like, Hey, so-and-so, Hey, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of trying to think of somebody who I wouldn't want to talk to, but I'll talk to pretty much anybody, but it's just like, you know, Hey, superstar dude, you should be on this show. And it's like, I, you know, like I would love to talk to, I don't know, Brad Pitt, but I don't think he's going to answer his tweets if you just start randomly tweeting at him or something. And I don't think Brad Pitt's on Twitter anyway, but that's always the thing is if you can get a hold of the person rather than the agent, that's always more helpful. I'm not going to go into details in case they're listening, but there was one film which you tried to help me get the director for a British, a British film. And I have no idea whether the director actually saw my emails, but I got one response from her agent who said, how many uh, listeners do you have? Which, you know, I realize you get, but this was an independent film. This is a little indie film and was not the sort of question I was expecting to ha- or the email that have come back to me. So I was very disappointed, but oh, well, what the hell? 
Never mind. They they miss out on the five listeners that I would have told about them about their film. But they're five very passionate listeners. Let's go to the next question. Could you talk a little bit about your process when watching films and reading books for the show? Do you just let books and movies wash over you, or do you have a notepad with specific categories you're looking for when you analyze films and books? When I'm reading books, I generally will... I'm reading a lot of stuff on my iPad, and so I do a lot of the bookmark highlight features and then i will go through at the end and look at all the bookmarks and then kind of take notes from there or try to copy paste if i can out of that into a word document or a notepad document and then as far as watching the movies you know this one morris because you see my outlines it's kind of the the boilerplate up front like hey how you doing here's the description of what we're about to watch and then it's just basically my notes as i'm watching the movie, which are pretty sloppy most of the time, but it's basically like me writing down things so I remember the key points. But every once in a while, I'll be like, oh, I just saw that there's a second decapitation or whatever it is and just try to like gather my thoughts that way. And then, of course, it's like I tried to do that probably three or four days. Like I'll watch the movie when I decide I'm doing the movie and then I'll watch it again a few days before. That's when I take the notes and then I'll watch it one more time right before we record so I can really kind of get everything in place mentally so that I can do that. But a lot of times it's like the more I read, the more I watch stuff, the more I prepare, the better I would hope I can talk about something. Just like I might not bring up everything that I've read or heard or know about something. I just try to help it. Let me speak more intelligently to something. So that's why. I don't just read off all of the IMDb trivia points or something when we're having a conversation because one, they're probably wrong. And two, they're not that interesting. And I'm just not all about the trivia of stuff unless it's like, Oh, Hey, did you notice so-and-so is in this movie? Did you see that guy back there? Oh yeah. That's, that's, I don't know, Christian Bale or whatever. So it's always kind of fun to point some of those things out if you have time and if it flows in the conversation, because it's all about the conversation for me. Look, just a, to, Pull the curtains back a little bit for the listeners because that's what this show is all about. Whenever Mike has a guest on uh, on the program, you're always sending out PDFs of books and um, or links to old newspaper articles and the like, something so we can put the film into historical context or you know what was the process, what was going on at the time, what was happening in the news if it's relevant to the making of the film, you know, what was happening in the film industry at the time. And uh, sometimes I think it's going to take me a year to read everything. Let me just, I'll pick one book. I'll go through one book and hopefully that's the one. Ultimately, yeah, it's, it comes down to what us as your co-presenters will read to, right? Okay. We've read that. What are we going to bring to it? It's our, it's our turn now, but it's just more information that, you know, we're not rattling off by rote. It's just there to just better inform us. And as you say, better than reading an IMDb or a Wikipedia page, something that's been researched well, and you can hopefully rely on. And given that so much of the show is not to, it's not a history podcast, although history is part of it, but it's also about what do you think in context of this? Do you think that this was a right choice to be made or did you enjoy this? And then you can use all that into the big 
gumbo stew to come up with informed opinions, as it were. That's how that works. Yeah, the one thing that really bothers me is so I try to share out everything that I possibly can. Like, oh, I found this book and I found this and like almost overwhelm. And I don't mean to overwhelm, but it's just like, here's all the stuff that I found. I always say when I'm talking with one of my co-hosts and they're like, well, I read this other book that you didn't send along and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you could have shared that. You know, it's reciprocal. You know, I, I might have liked to have read that too. Like, especially if it's one that, especially when you come to those movies where there's nothing about it like we are about to cover the plastic dome of norma jean which is this very obscure i guess is the best word for it film so there's like five articles that have ever been written about this thing and it's just like really so like i hope when i get on there with my co-host in a few weeks and record the episode one of them doesn't pipe up and go oh well in so-and-so's book that says that and yeah they wrote like 150 pages on this and it's like Great. Thanks. Got to choose the reliable people for those types of episodes, Mark. Time for another question. And this one makes me laugh. Not that I imagine you have any spare time in your life, but will there be any more books by Mike White in the near future? There are no plans for books in my near future. I'm still like slowly putting together interviews and things for a book about Elliot Gould. And I know I'm I need to get on that soon because Mr. Gould isn't getting any younger. I would love to go out there to LA and interview him for a few weeks and get all these stories down. I want to just talk about the movies that he made in the 1970s because it is such an eclectic batch of films. There's at least one unmade film that is, has a fascinating story. You get to see this wild trajectory of him, you know, coming in at the beginning of the seventies on top with mash, kind of staying there for a little bit, taking a nosedive, coming back out of that, and then making some weird shit at the end of his 1970s run. I think it would be a fascinating book, but. I don't have the time to work on that right now, other than the occasional interview that I might be able to score for that. Otherwise, I've been asked to write an essay for a book that Sam Deacon and Andrew Netty are working on, and I've been, I'm sorely late on that. Really need to find the time to work on that, but that's been about it for writing projects. Otherwise, Mino speaks so good when it comes to writing right now. That might lead into this next question, I guess. Given how well the projection booth is produced, I'm curious if you've had any job offers from companies wanting to start their own shows or who want to steal some of the Mike White magic for the shows they are producing. I mean, if somebody wanted to hire me and and this became my full-time day job, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's great. I actually... Before I went into this last job, I actually applied at a few podcasting places and even had a couple interviews. And I was very surprised when I didn't make the cut whatsoever. And one of them, it was like right up my street. It was heading up the social media presence for this daily podcast about Mac computers. And I was like, okay, yeah, I can handle that. No, didn't get the gig. So if I had... I might have tried to have actually gotten out of the rat race and done that job plus the projection booth, but nobody needs the Mike White magic. Nobody wants the Mike White magic, though, from what I understand, I've helped inspire a couple shows that are out there. So that's payment enough. I'm just glad that there are people that listen to my show and go, God, what an asshole. This guy can't do anything. I'll, I can make a podcast better than him. And then they go out and they do it. 
I've told you many times, pretty much your approach to editing a show is what I've done with my programs. Where there was a period where I didn't edit at all. Um, and then I did a little bit of mild editing and it was shit. And nothing made sense. I don't want to say to people don't listen to the early episodes, but of either of my podcasts, but they're a bit embarrassing. But once I started doing editing and then I listened to the projection booth and thought, oh, he's separating the channels before he edits. Okay. That gives me a little bit more flexibility, takes a little bit longer, but it's come up with a better sounding show. So pretty much I've aimed in the last few years to get a sound from editing approach, how the conversation sounds to do it like like you've done it. And I think it all started with the, my favorite trick in in Audacity using this, what was the name of the feature, where you basically cut the, the lengthy silences. Trun- oh, trun- silence. Truncate silence. Yes. Truncate silence. That was a that was a godsend. I, I love that. And then it just went further on from there. So so I've I've certainly learned some of that Mike White magic. Questions and discussion yet to be determined, but certainly from an editing perspective, I've learned lots. And for anyone out there who's thinking about, well, how does Mike edit? Have gone and made a video. I think it's on YouTube, is it? Yeah, a couple of them. Yeah, put a link in the show notes so people know just what goes into it. They can either look at it academically just to see, oh wow, that's that's a lot of work, or people can actually learn off that and then maybe hire Mike to um, to do this. And they say, yeah, this is too much. We'll pay you full time. Pay you a full time wage. That would be nice. Yeah, I mean that fills the the nerdy side of me as well as a little bit of the artistic, because I think there's a little bit of technical plus artistic decisions that go into all that stuff. So I've always enjoyed things that use both sides of the brain. You know, ultimately podcasting or filmmaking really supposed to utilize both. I've never sort of bought into the thing that, oh, you're an artist or you're a technical person and you know, really endeavors like filmmaking and podcast making or, being a musician, everything utilizes technical skills and artistic skills. So don't buy into the popular conception, folks. doesn't work. Mike's living evidence of this. Next question. How much work goes into editing trailer introductions for the shows? I feel like some of the more modern films, you can just find a trailer. But on the older films, it seems like you maybe edit more exciting trailers than exist out there. Is that true? I'm pretty fortunate when it comes to the trailers that play at the beginning of every show. There's there's usually ones that will exist. They might need some help, or I'll find the best ones are the radio trailers. I love good radio trailers. Occasionally, I will have to order those off of eBay if I can find them. Or sometimes they'll be on the Blu-rays or DVDs. Thank goodness for companies that put the radio trailers out there. Every once in a great while, I'll have to make a trailer for something and I'll, you know, try to find appropriate music and cut the clips and everything and just try to tell a story through the clips. And with that, luckily, I don't have to worry about the video, so I can just work with the audio. The one I'm most proud of is the trailer I made for Mark Romanek Static. I made an audio trailer hmm. for that and I really like how that came together, especially because I was playing it against the, those, this is the day. And it just, you know, which was in the movie and it just played perfectly into that in the way that it would fade up and fade down and have the clips from the movie in there. I was really happy about that. And now if I could get the radio DJ voice and do the, the name of the movie at the end or, 
you know, some sort of like tagline. That'd be really kind of cool. But so far, no. Before we go in, I just want you to know that until now, no other person besides myself has been in this room. I just want to ask that no food or drink be brought inside. Is this just a test or do I have seconds to live? You know, we're in radiation. Death is an ugly thing. This machine shows it an afterlife. It, it, it proves it. You just threw away a chance to be very rich. Very important. Now, my friends, the only difference between a soul that is saved and a soul that is lost is that one is saved. The other's lost. You know this whore of Moscow? Mr. Blick, Mr. Blick, you've been quoted as saying that this invention will change the way people will think about their lives. What exactly did you mean by that? People will be happy and not sad. I have a gun. Yes, so have I. If I hijack this bus, <laughs> then the price would come real quick. I mean, I wouldn't really hijack it. Oh, no, this is stupid. Class. <laughs> no, <laughs> hijacking. <laughs> this is the culmination of over two years of nearly continuous work. A lot of those radio trailers sort of things there, I mean, that really is part of a time, not just that voice, but the things that they'd say, because, you know, radio obviously being an audio only medium, you have to find another way to bring people in. And there were years ago where I would uh, be collecting CD bootlegs, like people would be sending stuff. I mean, in the 70s, people were sending each other tapes in the 90s or the noughties, people were sending each other burned CDRs. And I got this collection, uh, I, it was called Psychedelic Something, like a 10 CD set. And in the midst of having a whole lot of out of print 45s that collectors had gone and ripped to digital to put on these CDs, but they would also include film trailers from the radio. So there's ones like for uh, the trip with Peter Fonda and. Oh God, million, millions of these radio trailers and they're absolutely fascinating. And I just sort of thought, wow, we don't get that, but that's lost. That's lost to the late sixties, the early seventies where that was a medium. Everyone was listening to the radio. So it was another way to sell the films. And they also did that a lot for um, selling records, not just here's a new record from so and so buy it. I've got a collection of Harry Nilsson, a box set of Harry Nilsson. And on the end of most of those CDs, these incredibly funny and creative trailers that they played on the radio or ads that they did for the whatever the new Nilsson album by Son of Dracula. It's absolutely sensational. What do you think about it, Harry? Yeah, absolutely brilliant. So I'm going to go on a quest to find more of these radio ads for film or, or for records and, and the like, because that's, that's a thing unto itself. That's, uh, that's amazing. Yeah, there's a couple good compilations out there of like black exploitation trailer 
the ones for Rudy Ray Moore films are amazing because he does the, the voiceover for them. This is Rudy Ray Moore, better known as Dolomite. I'm the one that killed Monday and whooped Tuesday and put Wednesday in the hospital. Called up Thursday to tell Friday not to burst Saturday on Sunday. I've got an all-girl army that knows what to do. They'll fox as hell and practice kung fu. Dolomite. From the first to the last, I give them the blast so fast that their life is passed before they has even hit the grass. See me whack, jack, smack, crack, poop black, black jack, racetrack, and flapjack, and still coming back. Uptown, downtown, crowned and renowned. I put my finger in the ground and turn the whole world around. Dolomite, starring me, Rudy Ray Moore as Dolomite, and that bad Durville Martin as Willie Green. Dolomite. Rated R, under 17, not permitted without a parent or permission from your warden. But yeah, you find those in weird places, too, because there's a lot of them that are floating around on YouTube. But I found one for performance recently, collection of three that was out on archive.org. So, yeah, you just have to kind of scour. That's that's a really good resource is archive.org for sure. I, I remember uh, I made a suggestion. I got a. Uh, a couple of podcast friends, they did an excellent show. It's no longer going at the moment, shame, called Highway Hi-Fi. And every episode that they would do, they'd pick is a music discussion or music sort of documentary type podcast. And they did this research on a topic, but it would always be something really way left, left of center, not your typical thing. We're not like, we're not talking about. A, ty- a type of music. We're not talking about an artist. It's, it's always something really unusual. Like they did one episode on bone records, you know, records made from skeletons and the like, and made, made in Russia or something like that. Oh, the ones made off of x-rays? Yes. Sorry. That's, that's the one. Yes. They, they did an episode on, I didn't even know that this was a thing called laughing records. So where someone would sing and then they'd go, (laughs) it was a thing lasted for decades. So they were called laughing records. So I did an episode about the history of that, but I made a suggestion to them, which they followed up on and they used archive.org as a resource. There were ads made in the sixties and presumably the seventies, we'd get contemporary rock stars who would record a song, a dedicated song for whatever product they were advertising. So you had the Rolling Stones doing an advertisement for Rice Krispies. You had Pete Townsend of the Who talking about join the American Air Force. Pete Townsend of all people. Keith, Keith Moon doing one advertising flavored milk. And everyone was doing an ad for Coca-Cola, but they'd write different songs. So the Easy Beats, Cream did an advertisement for beer. You know, Jack Bruce's very distinctive voice for whatever beer they were advertising. So they did a whole episode just talking about these various advertisements and they'd looked up the history and they looked at how these people got involved. I'm sure Highway Hi-Fi is still online, even though they haven't recorded in a long while, but search out that episode, search out anything. Those guys are terrific. Ryan and Joe, if you're listening, hiya, keeping the flames alive. Do you plan your episodes in terms of ratings, such as space out what you think will be more popular throughout the year, or just plan what you think you'll be able to get to as interviews fall into place? Probably more the interviews fall into place, though I tend to 
I guess for the last few years, it's been a little bit of a mix of both. So there is the planned stuff, which I usually have that list ready by around September or October of the year before. And some of those might be planned around potential interviews. Like when I put Star Trek on the list for 2022, I was like, okay, well, I can get Doug Trumbull for sure. No problem. Not counting on that he was going to pass away between September and then when we recorded the episode. The bulk of the episodes are just things I want to talk about. And then the sometimes there are ones where the interviews will just kind of fall in my lap or fall into place. And then it might be, okay, well, let's do a special about this. We're doing this show on Police Squad, which also includes the... Well, the first episode is going to be about Airplane, then we're going to talk about Police Squad for six episodes, then we're going to talk about the Naked Gun films for three episodes, and while we're doing all this conversation about these things, we being myself, Mark Begley, and Chris Dashew, I was thinking, well, we're not covering Top Secret. I would really like to cover Top Secret, and you know me more, so it's like, I can't just talk about Top Secret, I now have to go out and see if I can find Zucker Abrams and Zucker to talk about it. And then, sure enough, I was able to get two out of the three, so that episode will have an interview. Plus, there was another writer who's credited on there, and so I tracked him down, and we had a wonderful discussion as well. So, And then, yeah, if I can find more folks from it, I've been going back and forth with the actor that played Nigel from the film, and hopefully I'll be able to get him for that as well. But yeah, it's just been like that snowball has started to roll, so it's like, okay, now I'll be able to support from the files of police squad in color with an episode on the projection booth of top secret pick another really really popular film because i mean obviously those episodes will rate like crazy and you get a lot of get a lot of downloads but do you find that if you follow up a, a blockbuster film type episode with something that's a lot more obscure do you find that there's still a follow-through because people have discovered you for the first time uh, through, say, your Blues Brothers episode, and they think, oh, I want to hear more this guy does, or... Not necessarily. I have to say that the more popular the film, the more downloads I get, but I don't really look at that. And when Dallas said ratings, I was thinking of, like, rated M for mature type of thing. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as, like, yeah, like, ratings slash download numbers, it's like... I obsess about the numbers, but I do not sway myself to say, I'm not going to talk about Welcome Home Brother Charles. I I should talk about Shaft if I'm going to talk about, you know, black action from, from the 1970s. It's really more what I want to talk about. And then every once in a while, some of those are like, oh, you know what? I would love to talk about Real Genius or something. And it's just, I don't know why I'm talking about Val Kilmer films so much, but it's like, Okay, so I know Real Genius is probably going to get more downloads than anything I do in Czech Timber, but I love Czech Timber, and I'm going to always do a Czech Timber. So, you know, that's just the way it is. And and I realized, like, oh, wow, I'm so shocked that Soviet Cinema Month has so few downloads. Well, of course it fucking has so few downloads. Nobody knows about, like, you know, Three Poplars or Welcome No Trespassing, all these kind of things. Your hardcore film fans might, and, and all the, the regular listeners, and I know some listeners, it's like, 
I will listen to a show unless I've seen the movie and the movie's too hard to find or I just don't have time to watch the movie. So they'll skip around and they'll just download what they want. They cherry pick. That's fine. Do whatever you want. However works for you works for me. It's that thing that I always say. I always think of Indiana Jones when he's just like, you know, I've got these pieces, Marcus. They're good pieces. It's like I would like to think every single episode, for the most part, is a good episode. So if you come back to it later on, yeah, that's great. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. The beauty of podcasting versus radio, it's eternal. And that's the one thing, too. is, And that's why I don't do that whole, like, well, what did you watch this week? You know, like, none of that, like... Of course, there are very timely references, especially when I make like little political jabs or like pop culture quips and stuff. That's very timely. But for the most part, those discussions, I would like to think, are timeless. You're not getting political again, are you, Mike? We can't have politics on your show. Films never get political. I watch a Manchurian candidate. There was no politics in that. Last question. Why was director of Far From Home, Mirt Avis, so worried you were going to use his likeness? What does Mirt know that we don't, Mike? Are you stealing souls? I really debated about keeping that line in there because he was so insistent at the beginning of our conversation about, like, this is just audio, right? And I'm like, yep, just audio. You're not going to use my likeness, right? I'm like, nope, not going to use your likeness. It's just going to be audio. You know, you could turn off your camera if you want. No, no, I'll leave it on. And then at the end that he hits me again with, and you don't have permission to use my likeness. I was just like, you know what? It's just so weird. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave it in. Another Alan Barron. Well, no, luckily he was very easy to get along with once we started going and stuff. But yeah, he was just very particular about his image being used. I'm just like, okay. Yeah, no, I told you, I told you like two or three times that this is not video. But yeah, for some reason, I was just like, I'm just going to, I'm going to leave that in. It would have been easy to cut, but it was just such a strange way to sign off on the conversation. So I'm like, but yeah, as far as the stealing of souls, I mean, yeah, sorry to tell you, but that's, that's pretty much how I maintain my very youthful appearance. You've been bathing in the blood of virgins. I just want to end by thanking Mike. We appreciate everything you do. What a wonderful 600 episodes and more. I, on a monthly basis, consider canceling my Netflix, but I never, ever consider uh, not supporting you and the show. Uh, I can't wait for the next 600. Thank you again. Would you ever focus an episode of, on your show about music videos? Or are you more just about the feature film type of thing? Good question. I don't think I've got a problem with the idea. In fact, I think it's a great idea. We've just never thought of it till now. If there was probably more within the context of the film clips of particular artist if those clips were noted clips or, or a director who went on to make movies and so right let's look at the development via this video clip so like someone like spike jones for instance i think like in the 80s that's i mean i, I was still watching like through maybe midway through the 80s i was watching like our uh, video clip tv shows we didn't get mtv here i mean i think like we had a a maybe by the late 80s on Saturday night on one of our free-to-air television networks, they had a show that was called MTV, but uh, we didn't have – we just all we had were the free-to-air network, so we'd have TV shows that were dedicated to film clips. And since the 90s, I think they're actually celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. There's a show called Rage, which started out, I think, in 92 – and it's shown on the ABC here, which is our version of the BBC, I guess, if you will, government 
own funded station. And basically, I think it was seen as like every overnight Friday night and overnight Saturday night, they'd have film clips all night. So people would feel free to go out and see bands until two in the morning and then come home and not feel like going to bed and then just turn on the TV and watch whatever it was on on Rage. And it's still going, still going to this day. So it's, it means a lot to uh, people, I think, especially in those who were around in the 90s. But given the show still going strongly, I guess it still means a lot to not just to people of that generation, um, but I've not watched film clips obsessively. I'd be happy to be educated, but it'd be if I'd be watching a lot of these old film clips, it'd be from more perspective of what have I missed out rather than what was I obsessively following along the way. I mean, there's obviously there's a lot of stuff, of course, that I do know, maybe from favorite artists. So like I've got a double DVD of David Bowie film clips, and there's some incredibly creative stuff there. I've got a double DVD, or was it a single DVD, just double album, of um, uh, Australian artist called Paul Kelly. I, I think when I was going, I loved watching the the performance videos, but of course, that got old hat. Uh, so they had to start putting the, the stories in, but I never really cared for clips that were had to have a short attention span, two seconds of this, two seconds of that, two seconds of the other thing. I like where they told the story, the camera wasn't afraid to linger. Imagine that you'd remember this film clip. This would be, I can't remember, 79, 80, but from, from the band Ultravox, this song Vienna, that looks like a film noir. If you haven't seen that, watch that great song, wonderful film clip. And that was, I think, where I first started noticing, oh, they're telling a story here. Okay. You know, I guess you could sort of compare a lot of the other film clips that came later on with this two seconds of this, three seconds of that. Maybe that's experimental filmmaking. I don't know. Look, I have a lot of respect for people who go out and do that. But just I got to a point where I'd much rather listen to the record rather than always watch the film clips. But It's funny that you brought up Rage because I remember seeing a lot of videos on YouTube, I think, that are tagged with Rage at the bottom right-hand corner. I never knew where that came from, so it must be off of the ABC. It is, yeah, absolutely. I think um notice the same thing when I go looking for film clips. So they, I guess maybe Australians are very good at archiving, or they, I guess a lot of times people would, you know, back in the days of VHS, would they say, right, I'm going to go, I'm going out for the evening, going out for the night, but I want to catch all of Rage. And before, you know, the modern days where you can just sort of catch up on ABC iView on, online, they would record on VHS and they'd keep all this stuff aside and then digitize it and put it up on YouTube when that became an option. And that's been fantastic because archival, this is, it's not just music history, it's film history. I remember one of the things that I was, you know, doing in doing the bootleg trading for, I was in a Beatles group and before we were able to get the, the Beatles stuff on DVD and Blu-ray, the, the film clips, which came out a few years ago, the One Plus collection. They'd gone and done a whole lot of Beatles film clips as a, I think they, they did it every year, once a year, on maybe on some anniversary or something, they'd show all the Beatles film clips. And then the rest of the night would be as many solo film clips as they could find. And so all this was from Rage. Someone had just gone and captured that, right, okay, we'll, we'll author that as a DVD and put that out in the trading community and it's fascinating to see that. Now, now that I actually sort of think of it, I remember when you, myself, and Eric Peterson were talking about the uh, Time Bandits a couple of years ago, and we mentioned because that was filmed through handmade films and George Harrison's 
connection to the to Eric Idle, the Python team, and creating handmade forms because he wanted to see Life of Brian made. But he'd long had friendship with the Python team, particularly Eric Idle. There's a couple of film clips of uh, of George Harrison's that look very Python-esque. Like one particular, there's a song from 1976 called Crackerbox Palace. And that is very, very multi-Python influence. I'm sure that, you know, Eric Idle was in his ear. So, hey, be pushed around like a baby in a pram. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure actually there's one, one bit where that you see Neil, I think it's Neil Innes who's walking around dressed like a old early 20th century nanny, um, pushing a pram. And then the, the, the top of the pram, whatever it's called is pulled down and it's George Harrison. Sticking his head out and singing the song and very, very Pythonish. So if we were to do something on C here about film clips, because it's a very broad topic. We can't just talk about film clips because it'd be like saying, hey, let's do a one-off podcast where we talk about films, but maybe focusing on one artist or one director of film clips or one era or something like that. Something film clips that subscribe to a particular style. I mean, I know Godley and Cream, who were previously they were in 10 CC and then became because the um, Graham Goldman and I forgot the other guy were going more in a pop direction when Godley and Cream were going a little bit more avant garde. So they quit made their own music, but then they also became directors of their film clips and then other people's film clips. So it might be good to do a, like a little history of uh, Godley and Cream's film clips. I don't know. I'm just throwing this out there. Who knows? It'll happen sometime. But it's, it's a great suggestion. It's a very good suggestion. Yeah, there's a couple YouTube shows that I watch where they will dissect songs. There's one, especially this series, uh, Produce Like a Pro, where the guy talks about music production a lot, which is great and like way outside of my ballywick at all. And though I try to like pick up stuff if I can, but he will also do this thing of like songs that change music or albums that change music. And he will go through and he'll talk about all the, you know, here's the instrumentation, here's this, here's that. And I love that kind of stuff. But a lot of times it's like, oh, and you should talk about the video too, because the video is really what helped propel this thing out there for so many people. And it's probably a rights thing. I don't know, but never actually talks about the video. And it's like, oh yeah, th- that would be great. Like having a, almost like a, like a mini projection booth or a mini see here or something of just, people going through and taking apart videos. Cause like I used to love stuff like pop-up videos. Those were fascinating for me to hear about the stories behind the scenes of the video itself or what was going on with this musician at the time. What was the importance or meaning of the song? You know, sometimes the video would be completely diametrically opposed to what the meaning of the song was, but yeah, having that type of like behind the scenes, cause I think videos are just kind of, an overlooked art form sometimes that people just, you know, they were like popcorn. They would just eat them and throw them away and shit them out kind of thing. And it's like, it's like, no, some of these things, I still think of the video when I hear the song, you know, I can't hear pretty much any Oingo Boingo song without thinking of the videos for those songs, especially, you know, like little girls or private life or stay. Like some of those are just indelible for me. That's the Elfman brand, is it? It's as much visual as it is audio. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. 
I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real horror show. Bye-bye. This is from Robert Lovejoy, and he asks, Hey, Mike. Thank you for all your shows and for introducing me to films, filmmakers, and enriching my enjoyment of films through your podcast. I enjoy the music mixes you shared with us and wanted to ask, what are your favorite film scores and or favorite composers? Happy holidays, Robert. Well, that's a tough one. I used to listen to film scores a lot more than I do these days. I don't listen to music as much as I used to even, but I'm a sucker for the greats, you know, like your Morcones, a lot of your spaghetti Western artists. I will still listen to some of the classic John Williams scores. Not no, not so much the Star Wars ones, but I mean, Indiana Jones, the first Raiders of the Lost Ark, that score. Oh my goodness. Especially the expanded score. Cause I see the entire movie playing in my head because that music is ever present and it is so critical to how that story is told. Same thing with like the Superman soundtrack from 78. I bought that on record when um, when it came out. I would say probably the soundtracks I listen to the most are probably things like Hedwig and the Angry Inch and Rocky Horror Picture Show. That's a separate question. They're musicals. We're talking music as score as opposed to songs. But but okay, well, but that's that's another question to answer. Hedwig. I, I only discovered Hedwig like whatever two and a half three years ago for the first time. I think Tim picked that as a film for us to do, and. I just saw every song after song after song. I mean, great film, but I'm happy to listen to that just as a set of songs. Uh, wig, wig in a box. My God. Origin of Love is the one that, when that gets into my head, it just stays there for days and days. And then things like Evita, you know, but that's a, a stage musical. But then Shock Treatment. I really like Shock Treatment, probably even better than the film itself. Just shortly before it came out officially, I'd won from a radio station at Double Pass to go see Rocky Horror Picture Show with Shock Treatment, the main feature straight after. So, you know, everyone came and was really enjoying Rocky Horror. And then we were watching Shock Treatment and thinking, what the hell have we just watched? I think 40 years or whatever it is down the track, I think I'm due for a rewatch when I give it another, another crack. But I remember the time not really caring for it. The first time I saw it, it was very much the same reaction. I was just like, what the hell? What's going on? Where's Frankenfurter? Why is Brad and Janet? Where are they played by different people? This doesn't make any sense. How come Riff Raff and Magenta and Columbia are here, but they're not playing the same characters? And then having like Rick Mail in here being completely underused. And I didn't remember Rick because the young ones wasn't a thing yet. Oh my God. So Rick Mail was in shock treatment. Wow. Definitely got to watch. It's basically like Magenta and Riff Raff together, and then Columbia and the Rick Mail character, who I think is just named Rick or something. Rick. 
then Mary Humphrey showing up as somebody who's blind, but not necessarily blind. <laughs> it was it was interesting. But yeah, I, I like that soundtrack a lot. And and then things like I mean, pretty much every musical we've ever covered, I always enjoy the soundtracks for that, especially things like the American Astronaut. I mean, I was just listening to the Billy Nair show yesterday and it's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Mind you, the the song I would have thought that your favorite songs would have been from um from that film that got you into trouble because of stuff that I said. Well, was it was the one with Robbie Benson. Uh, die die laughing. Die laughing. Die laughing. Yes. Yeah, some great some great songs in that one. You did notify me, you said, Oh, we're gonna have a question about soundtracks in case uh, you want to chip in. I do have a few soundtracks I want to nominate, but also we'll also ask a question which I've pretty much already gone and answered it, but and that I know that there's a lot of film critics out there who subscribe to the notion that soundtracks are only doing their job if you're not paying attention to them. They they enhance the mood, but you should be ignoring them. If they're drawing attention to themselves, then they're not doing their job. I mean, I call bullshit. I agree with you, but I can't imagine how any if the film is a great film, then they work hand in hand. And this is what it's like saying. If the film is doing really, really good, you should just notice the scenery and we shouldn't give a shit about the dialogue. It's rubbish. And like I think a testament to this is with silent films where you get someone, an organist, or you get a group like the Blue Grassy Knoll, who've been doing it locally for the Buster Keaton films, come up with a new score. Um, and if the film is strong enough, and in the Buster Keaton films case, well, yes, of course they are, then this is the music as a partner in in the action and and you know here we are sort of remembering our favorite pieces of music you say that you listen to the indiana jones score by john williams and the film is running in your head it's a it's a trigger for what you see so just blew my mind that there are critics out there who suggest that the music should just be there to serve the action but you shouldn't be remembering it certainly there's a lot of unmemorable music maybe because they're, they're serving, they're trying to serve that purpose. But when when a great film composer is doing his or her job, I think, then should be coming out of there and remembering the music or at least wanting to hear it again via a record or a CD. You know, it's just... I mean, the job that, that Howard Shore did for The Lord of the Rings and having the different musical motifs for the characters and even having that theme for the ring itself, I mean, that's beautiful. You know, it's just, it's like how the Ark has its own theme in Raiders of the Lost Ark, but the ring has its own theme. And you hear that. And you're just like, oh, okay, we are right there with the ring. And that was one thing where I think that they really screwed up in the Hobbit movies is because they were reusing themes, but they were using them incorrectly. And it's just like slapping stuff in there. And I'm like, no, no, this has to do you know, the, the craft that went into Lord of the Rings. You know, it's wonderful. And you hear like, you know, when Saruman's theme comes up and you're just like, oh, okay, something really heavy is going to go down right here. And it's like, it's almost Peter and the Wolf with some of the themes that they had inside of there. Thought that that was part of the composer's kit bag. You know, you're watching, you're watching Star Wars. And when Vader walks through the door, cue the Imperial theme. Bum, 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 bum. And yeah, sure, that's that's the whole thing. There'll be variants depending on you know whether the character is in a sad moment or in a happy moment. They'll replay that theme with a different arrangement. But 
I mean, look, I'm not saying anything here that you know listeners to your show don't already know, but it's just I just wanted to bring up that whole point that I find it in, incredible that there are some people out there who would suggest that music should be heard but not really listened to. I think I've made this complaint several times just recently where it's like, I want to be able to think of what that theme was when I walk out of the movie theater. And there are too many movies right now where it's just like, was there a theme in Black Panther? Was there a theme in, you know, Black Adam or any other movie that started with black that had a superhero in it? I mean, it's just like, there's nothing. And it's very like wallpaper-esque. And it's like, no, no, I want to be like, you know, like... Even like with the Avengers, it's like you've got that theme, like, okay, yeah, now the action's about to start. Like it really is in service of what's going on. And yeah, to your point, they need to work hand in hand. The music needs to drive the action and the action needs to pump up the music. I've gone and made a list ten scores here. Steven Spielberg, when he made Jaws, acknowledged that the film is not the same film without John Williams' shark motif. That that's it came like a, it became a pop culture thing unto itself. Boom, 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 boom. That on the double bass, I don't think it was a cello. It enhanced the film. It made it. Yes, you do it. Uh, even take away that main theme aside, you listen to a lot of the music while they're chasing the shark, and it's it's less. It's not horror music. It's more adventure music. You, you're thinking like you're listening to a classic corn gold score. Or something, you're watching the Crimson Pirate or something like that, because they're out on the ocean, they're out on the sea. So he's using more corn gold as an influence than I don't know, pick another classic horror film score composer. And I remember I think like my sister buying me a copy of the record. We were going out one night to the movies and there was I was maybe about ten years old or something like that. And I wasn't allowed to go see Jaws at the time. It was rated M. And I was only 10 years old. I mean, I would have been allowed in, but my sister wasn't going to take me. But if you want the soundtrack, I thought, yeah, I'll have the soundtrack. And I read the book and until I was able to go see it by myself. But that, that music, it, it just is so exciting. And then getting to see it in the context in the film. And I thought, man, it was like a, what was it? The perfect storm. If, if Steven Spielberg hadn't tried John Williams for that. John Williams, he was composing music, I think, for, um, uh, for TV series, Lost in Space. And uh, some of some of those other Irwin Allen TV shows, but I think didn't he start out like as a jazz pianist or something like that? Yeah, I think it, he- which really fits for uh, the Long Goodbye and all the different variations that he does in that. But some of the best ones are the jazz variations, which sort of brings up the question why he hasn't done more of that over the years. You know, because like everything he because I think there was a time in the seventies that was going to be the decade, the new Hollywood where they were going to move away from traditional orchestral scores. And that started late 60s. And maybe it was budgetary considerations, or maybe it was just like, we're making films a new way. We should score them a new way. And then John Williams, you know, blame him or or hug him or whatever you want to go. But he brought back the big orchestral scores. And I sort of miss the fact that, you know, there were you know, scores like, well, another one I want to bring up, another one of my favorite scores, David Shires, taking a Pelham one, two, three. Uh, horn heavy, very percussive. As I think I might have said to you in a previous episode, I'm sure that David Shire would have been a big fan of uh, Lalo Schifrin. That that it just has that feel, and I'm sure they were both paying attention to what was happening in the black exploitation world as well. But David Shire, great composer, fantastic composer. So some of the others I want to mention because, like in my house growing up, 
my sisters, well, sorry, one of my sisters bought a lot of scores. That was that was our thing. So one record that I played a ton was Jerry Goldsmith's soundtrack to Planet of the Apes. And yeah, go try telling me that the music should not draw attention to itself in that film. It makes it so much more exciting. A lot of use of uh, 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 discordant motifs. And- oh, yeah. It's like a Bella Bartok score for me. Right. That was one that we had. And I recently went back to my old house and found that record lying around. It scratched a buggery, but I thought, no, I'm taking it home. I'm taking it home, even if it ruins my record play needle. Uh, I don't care. I-, I love it. That's part of my childhood. Bernard Herman, overall, fantastic composer but i'm gonna go for his final score taxi driver and i i got a i have a cd of the soundtrack which has the first part is the score as it was for um for the film and you have once again very the three main in- families of instruments used on that there's the, the percussion very horn heavy not so much use of the strings but the other one thing that they do a lot of use of the harp on on that and um I love how he picked his. It's not just the composition, it's the great arrangements. Believe that he delivered that just before Christmas Day to Scorsese, he delivered the final score, and then he died on Christmas Day or or day after Christmas Day in 1975. But yeah, he turned in a brilliant score. But yeah, the other part of that CD, which was, I guess, a reissue, has a, I can't remember who's doing it, but like a five or six variations on those things that it's more i don't know aor type of smooth jazz sort of variants of the uh, betsy's theme and the main theme from taxi driver and i gotta say i love it i know that a lot of people say oh that cd would be better if it didn't have those five or six cards ah shut up you know they're they're fantastic i I love the original score that's what i bought it for but these five or six extra variants they're they're great i don't care what anyone says miklos roger was someone who my sister turned me on to we had the soundtrack for ben-hur when when I was a kid, and that's a memorable, really memorable score. And yeah, you'll talk about motifs, and when things were hard for Charlton Heston, there's this one motif, and but when he was triumphing, there was another motif, and just fantastic, fantastic album. I think we also had the score for Spartacus, which was by oh, I forget his surname was North, someone North, Alexander North. What else? Oh, all right, so this. This is an amazing story. Normally, you hear some music, regardless of whether it's soundtrack music or or a song that you hear on the radio, and if you don't hear it again, whatever, even if it's a memorable song for a few days or a couple of weeks, you'll forget it. You might have some inkling, but this is a score that I never forgot because it was so powerful, and it's by Goblin, and it's the score for Deep Red, Profondo Rosso. I saw that when I was 13, I was visiting my family in Israel, and my uncle took me to this cinnamon chetzlia to see Deep Red. I'd wanted to see it here, but it was rated R. I couldn't get in. There was no rating system over there. So he just took me across the road to see this film. And I love, love, love the film, but the score, the Goblin score, never left my head. And I didn't see the film again for 25 years, and it was exactly as I 38, and I think I got like a local DVD from Umbrella that put it out a really chock a block full of documentaries and extras on that so it was a good uh it was a good release but i remember watching that and thinking i remember all this music exactly it's in my head it's so distinctive i mean i love their their other music you know for for um 
uh, uh, for Suspiria. And when, when, when the original lineup, I think apart from maybe the drummer, uh, reunited and did a world tour, they came here. I went with uh, my friend Robert. I, who I didn't know was a fan of Argento. I said, "Want to go see Goblin?" Is it? Yes. And we went to see. You had the you had the option of watching them perform the Acme Cinema while a movie was playing, and they were playing the score along, or you could see them in concert, and they'd just do a range of music from all the films. And I took that as an option. And they still showed like little clips in the background while they were playing anyway. So hugely memorable night, and I, I love that they brought jazz fusion into a film score and. Don't know. I mean, you watch the Bava films, and before that, or in, in the great Jali composers, even uh, Argento before Deep Red wasn't really using that sort of music. And he met these guys, and oh my, I think I would love to have seen a lot more um, in that vein. But but yeah, favorite one. Only other two films I've got on my list here. I mean, I've got probably tons, but another one. Did you see in the early nineties the Gerard Depardieu? remake of Cyrano uh, uh, de Bergerac. Brilliant, brilliant film. Fell in love with it. It's like, a, it's a long film, about two and a half hours or something like that, but it couldn't be a minute shorter. And there's a, I bought this score, probably going to screw up the name, but Jean-Claude Petit uh, wrote the score. And it's just, it's a beautiful score to just put on. You don't need to have seen the film. It's an orchestral score, but a really memorable, beautiful orchestral score. It's, it's romantic, is inspired by presuming the the era of classical romanticism we spoke about that when you came on to talk about um, uh, uh, Amadeus a few months ago on see here but that era it's it sort of it doesn't sound to me like orchestral film score music it sounds like he was inspired by classical era or romantic era classical music to me just beautiful beautiful set of music and. The final one I want to mention is more like a rock band score, and my one Australian listening, shame on me. We had a, we have a band, well, had a band here called Not Drowning Waving, and they made a film. Also, they didn't make. They scored a film from the early nineties, directed by Jocelyn Morehouse, a film called Proof, and really more like a play. I mean, there were a few other actors in it, but there were three. It was basically a three hander. I would love to do an episode on that sometime because, yeah, that movie really knocked me out. And every time I watch it, it knocks me out. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, it's, it's a funny thing. Though. I think um, I've seen it must be a dozen times and about three or four of those times at the cinema. But it had been a few years since I'd seen it at one point. I think the Cinematheque was doing a screening. We didn't realize until someone came out and told us that they'd gone and put two reels in the wrong order. But- I didn't even remember it. It still seemed to sort of make sense in a way because it's less about a narrative start to finish. I mean, it is sort of narrative start to finish, but it's more about the gameplay between these characters. And yeah, Hugo Weaving, Russell Crowe, Genevieve Picot, all absolutely fantastic. And I'd love to see that done as a stage production. It could be done as a stage production. But the other things, I love watching Melbourne films because I love trying to spot the location. And there are a couple of moments where I think, I think I know where that is. But yeah, oh, sorry. Anyway, but not draining waving were a, a local, I guess more of uh, put under the world music banner because they had a big association with this, I think it's Telic, Papua New Guinea, the music of Papua New Guinea. But yeah, they, they always put out great albums and 
they had like a brief run at the end of their life with commercial radio. They they put out one album where they tried to make some tunes that might work on the radio, and it gave them a little bit of a run. But but you know they were fantastic, very very cinematic type band. You listen to their early music, and yeah, they're very cinematic in their outlook. So the fact they did for Proof, and they also did for a, fil- a film which I haven't seen called Greenkeeping, which is a comedy. I really should get onto that, but. Uh, some of the and a couple of the tunes that ended up on Proof, they redid with um, with lyrics for what was their final album called Circus. Yeah, Proof, not Drowning Raving, another great school. So I've gone and hijacked that whole question. There's one more that I want to mention that if people have never heard the soundtrack for Paul Schrader's Touch, you we were talking about Taxi Driver, reminded me of Schrader, and then this one, uh, it's with it's based on an Elmore Leonard book and stars the savior cinema, in my opinion, Skeet Ulrich, but it is done by this guy. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of him. His name is Dave Grohl and um, did a really good job with that soundtrack. So I kind of wish that Grohl would do more soundtracks because it's really solid and it's good music. What sort of instrumentation was he using? Did he score for like an orchestra or did he just, was it a rock band? What was he doing? It was more rock band. It was definitely some good driving guitar type stuff, but not overwhelming. But yeah, there's some good themes to it. And I, it was one of the few where I could just like put on that soundtrack and just enjoy it and just listen to it as a soundtrack and yeah, dug it quite a bit. I mean, it's funny because so many of the things that you mentioned, it's like, oh, that's in my record collection. Oh, that's in my record collection too. So once, once you got to Spartacus, I was like, okay, I'm not with you anymore. I don't have that one, but pretty much everything else I was, or not Spartacus and her, but pretty much everything else I was just like, oh yeah, got that. That's a good one too. I do have a question for you. Do one more thing, unless you've got a bunch more. Okay, so this is something that's fairly topical, but I'm so bear me out with the subject. It's the question's not necessarily going to go the way you think it is, but um, we're doing this at the end of December 2022, and a big topic for the chattering classes on the internet over the last few weeks has been the sight and sound poll the 10 yearly sight and sound poll of the greatest films ever made. And I was listening to Movie Geeks United and their take on it. And I, what's his name? Tony Macklin was uh, one of the co-hosts and he was losing his lunch over the, the number one selection, John Delman, which I'd never even heard of until this point. So it seems like every year when we get to the Oscars and the BAFTAs and you know whatever other critic or popularly nominated awards seasons you always get people in public you know just ordinary film folk like us you know just saying what the hell were they thinking that film was a chunk of shit or they forgot this film or rah 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 and i have a solution to this it's so this is not so much to discuss what did you think of their picks although we can talk about that as well but i have a problem with the notion of a best because think about this. This is not science. It's not scientific. And if these are the 10 best films, then unless a better film is made in the next 10 years, none of those 10 films should get supplanted. Jean Delmain went from 37th in 2012 to number one in 2022. Best to me would define something that's scientific or something that's objective. You can't measure it. It's art. And if I wonder if people would get 
upset if they said the favorite films according to 1600 film critics at site and sound interview i mean yeah people are always going to complain because you know hell that's what they do but really if if it's presented as favorite films of these people you really don't have a space to to object because it's hey man don't bust my chops and how can you define what is best is it is a film best because it's technically great is it is a film best because the story is being told in a creative way what makes a film the best and that's i have this that's i mean, haven't watched the oscars in years not because of that but i'm just not interested but you know as a kid i used to i love a list as much as any as it, much as anyone does it's what human beings do but what i wanted to ask you is do you think that there is a place to declare something is the best or do you think people would get less worked up if these polls were declared the favorite films of 1600 people that we polled or the favorite films of the top uh, of these 200 directors where do you stand on i think people are going to get upset no matter what yeah i'm not a big fan of lists i mean i i it's like a movie like High Fidelity. I couldn't stand because the guy's always making lists. Calm your ass down. You don't have to make lists all the time. And the inter- in the internet runs on lists, right? I mean, listicles is a, is a portmanteau that's come about because of the internet. So, yeah, I just it was so hard for me to get worked up. You know, I found what I found the most interesting was when somebody put together a list of what films were on the last sight and sound poll and no longer are on the sight and sound poll. And that list was very interesting to me to see some of these films that dropped out, which to me are some of the best films that have ever been made, you know, like Chinatown or the wild bunch and just some of these really like influential films. And that's to me, like when it comes to a list of the best films, I would think of ones that really, change the way that films are made perhaps and that would be a really different list you know (laughs) like just think about like oh well this was the first 3d film or this was the first color film you know just like those milestones of like we couldn't be where we are unless we had these movies to stand on kind of thing that might make the film innovative but does it make it the best no no not at all I mean, that's, but that is where a film like Citizen Kane fits in for me as far as, wow, really solid story, really so- solid storytelling, and then breaking all of the rules of cinema that currently existed at the time of it being made and still holding up today. So, like, something like, you know, I don't know, whatever the first 3D film was, it's just like, yeah, not really into this, you know, whatever it is, but. It was an important film. It showed us what we could do. But like I said, people are just going to get upset no matter what, even if you said these are the top films of 1600 critics. And then it'd be like, well, who are these people? Who are, you know, how'd they get invited? Everybody's just got to get upset all the time. Really? On the, on the internet? I know. I know. This week I am putting out the, <laughs> I don't do a top list of movies I saw in 2022 or whatever it is, because I haven't seen that many movies. I'm too busy with a fucking podcast. I can't see everything and I can't see all the bad movies. I can say the worst movies I saw, the best movies I saw, but a lot of that stuff is, 
you know, the best movies I saw from the year 2022, a lot of those were actually released a couple of years ago, but now they're finally just getting catching up. I mean, to me, Inspector Ike was one of the best movies I saw this whole year that was technically released in 2020, but it didn't make it to my radar until 2022 and really was kind of buried because of the pandemic. That's why, like, if I'm putting out a list, and I'm as guilty as anyone, I like a list. I like to do it, but I'll I'll say my favorite discoveries. Every year when Love That Album does its end-of-year thing, I go around to a bunch of music-related folk and say, what were your favorite albums that you discovered for the first time this year? It could be a 50-year-old record. If someone else doesn't know it exists, then you might have made their day, made their year. So that's why I'm more about the favorites rather than the best because someone might come along and say, well, you know, there's – they're more creative use of modal jazz in in on this album than over that album. Or, I mean, look, here's the thing. I've been guest on many times on the uh, all-time top 10 podcast, you know, what it'll be, like a all-time top 10 Beatles covers, all-time top 10 tribute songs, all-time top 10 songs about hard times. And I'm not going to pretend like I've heard every one of these songs. Just here are, ten, here are five or 10 songs that I really dig, and I'm just going to put them in the list. It's not about best. It's just favorite and I think well plus I cover my ass by saying right it's my favorite so they say what about this I said well it's not my favorite well I haven't heard that you know it's your favorite make a list I'd like to read it but anyway so that's my whole my whole thing and the other thing is I know that this list would piss you off because there's no black shampoo yeah exactly who are these people to say that the best does not include genre cinema or it doesn't include black exploitation it doesn't include wacky comedies Really, you're not going to put bring oh well, maybe maybe bringing up babies in there. I don't know, but really, you're not going to put you're not going to put a screwball comedy. You're not going to put in my man Godfrey. Ridiculous, ridiculous. So you know that's what you cover yourself if you say no. It's our favorites, and plus think about the millions of films that no one have long been out of print or you can't find. Like Skiz, he also says that every film is somebody's favorite film. So I'm like, yeah. I agree. There there are people who love Manos, the Hands of Fate. There are people that love Cool as Ice. You know, just whatever movie it is, they probably think it's just the best thing. There are some people like me where it's just like, I know this is garbage, but I love it. I never will call something a guilty pleasure because I don't think that anybody should feel guilty about liking something. So I unabashedly like some real garbage films. I how many times have I talked about Free Jack on this show? I fucking love Free Jack or, or, you know, just whatever garbage movie it is. And I'm just like, okay, I know it's not that great, but I'm not going to feel guilty for liking it. I mean, some people can make a case that like Demolition Man is not that much of a work of art, but I'm just like, I'll, I don't care if it's a work of art. I like it. I will watch it whenever it's on TV. Some people would even say like, oh, Jaws is just genre cinema and it doesn't deserve a place. And it's like, no, it definitely does. It's a great, great movie. And yeah, it might not be the best movie ever made in the entire world. Might not have changed the world of cinema, but God, it's good. I got into an argument. Well, not really an argument, but I typed something into um, comments on a YouTube channel. This guy, he does an excellent show called Sea of Tranquility. Pete Pardo is his name. And he just talks about favorite hard rock albums or favorite prog albums or favorite he just he's passionate about music and then one time i can't remember what the topic was but he said oh that's right the whole topic may have been guilty pleasures and i went and typed in i don't believe in guilty pleasures because if you like it don't measure guilt is all about 
measuring up to what other people say you should like. If you like it, like it. You know, don't feel guilty about it. And he sort of went and told me off, saying, "No, hey man, this is my topic, and and it's a, it's a well known expression, and no one's taking it seriously. And I want to say guilty pleasures. I'm like, okay, I'm standing back, standing back. But gu- guilty pleasures, and also the so bad it's good. I think there was a time where I used that, but I thought that that was a lazy descriptive. I thought, no, it's we can all agree that maybe objectively something doesn't have great production values, or the dialogue might be not measuring up to something but if it's entertaining i think the worst crime that any work of art can be is dull if, if you watch something and it seems like yeah that's not realistic but god it's entertaining it's so funny if i've been entertained it's a good film i don't like to be bored and i mean now i'm not going to take swipes at jean dalman because i haven't seen it yet but when i read the description of it i was just like this sounds like it's going to be real slog to get through and it's one of those where it's just like Maybe if I saw this theatrically, then it might be a different experience because I can tolerate a lot of things if I'm going in and sitting in a theater more than if I'm sitting on my couch. Then it's just like, is anything going to happen in this thing? What, what the hell? got to say, the hardest slog for me was a film that you ended up covering on the show, which was, I think, Across the Silver Globe. Max and, once again, Ben Buckingham and I were at Monster Fest. A few years ago, and they um, brought out a print of that, and it was Sunday morning. I was looking forward to it. I knew nothing about it. Oh, this could be good. And I just looked at Ben after that and said, what the fuck did we just watch? And he just laughed and said, oh, you got to read into it. Said, oh, yeah, sure. No, no. But Max and Ben were trying to justify that. Not for me, but if you got something out of it, I'm glad. And once again, who am I to tell anyone that it, it, it's a crap film? No, it's not. It's If, if it meant something to, to them and- I remember you guys were speaking. I remember you were saying something. I was like, yeah, I'm still not sure I know what this means. But, and I was thinking, oh, great. That's the reason I downloaded this. I was hoping you were going to reveal to me what it was about. <laughs> we tried to get there. We tried. Oh, yeah. Oh, you did. And credit and kudos to you that you didn't watch it and think, I can't do this. We got, we got to cancel. We got to cancel this episode. I can't remember. There was one film somewhere along the line. I don't remember if it was for our show or if it was for someone else's show, or whatever. I thought, Oh, I remember. I remember. It was um, it was a uh, Sam Fuller film. I think Terry Frost in, had me on Paleo Cinema, and he'd suggested what's a Western gun, gun something. Forty um, guns. Forty guns. Forty guns. And I started watching that, and I wrote to Terry. I said, "You got to pick something else for me. Just I can't get." And I don't mind Sam Fuller. I like Sam Fuller, but just you know, give me. Give me something else, but just not that one. And I think in the end, in the end, he gave me Ice Cold and Alex, which ended up being one of my favorite films ever. Oh, great. So we went from something I just had no affiliation for to something that became an absolutely beloved film of mine. Um, uh, there you go. This has been a wonderful discussion. And, you know, apart from, apart from printing out the questions and, that your uh, listeners had and printing out the uh, top 20, oh no, top 30 films for, according to Sight and Sound, it was all off the cuff. How did I do it? I like to have lots of notes. How did I do it? Ah. What is going on with your show? Are you, you're still on a little bit of a hiatus or shows, I should say, because you've got See Here as well as Love That Album. We're still on hiatus. I'm not going to sort of like go into the whys and wherefores, but life is a bit bit askew. I don't know what the good word is to use at the moment, but yeah, I've got 
I got issues at the moment that are just basically I can't sort of put in the time to write lots of notes and think lots of thoughts about great films. I'd much rather just sort of sit and watch a film and let it wash over me at the moment or put on a record and let it wash over me rather than sort of having to think about what makes this great hiatus. I will come back from that. I mean, look, we might do something in January. Well, actually, maybe not January. But we might do something in February. Circumstances may change, but yeah, I just sort of wasn't really in a place the last few months. That's why I did do an end of year thing by myself for Love That Album, where I just I just felt the need, and I did it piecemeal, talking about three, well, well, three favorite albums in a little bit of detail that I'd heard for the first time in 2022, and four with just a minute each, just basically just sort of recommend to people or say, hey, this is what I dug. Please write in to me if you um, want to tell me your favorites. I needed to do that, but to do the more long-form album discussion sort of thing, I can tell you that the next Love That album, when it comes, hopefully in February, but we'll see, it will be about Pete Townsend's White City, uh, came out in 1985, and there was also a film, a short film that made accompanying it made by Richard Lowenstein, who made Dogs in Space. So my guest for that will be Charlie Mahoney, who I want to recommend. He's on a couple of wonderful podcasts. One's called Stinking Paws, P-A-U-S-E, named from the Get Your Filthy Paws Off Me, or Get Your Stinking Paws Off Me, You Damn Dirty Ape. Uh, so it's an English uh, a film discussion podcast and Scott Phipps who hosts that. There's been like a rotating series of uh, fellow presenters, but Scott and Charlie and uh, this other fellow, I think his name is Paul. Sorry, Paul, if I've forgotten you, if you're listening to this, they do a great job. But Charlie's also on a semi-regular on this other show that Scott hosts called uh, um, Real Britannia. And they do some deep diving into British films of all stripes, you know, some some I've never heard of and some really big names as well. And just basically they could go forever because they got the but these guys they really know and really love their British cinema. But it's this is not an academic podcast. These guys they know everyone. They absorbing film and TV all their lives. Uh it's not academic, but really great discussion. Um and I love that as I love those shows and Charlie's a big part of that. So um, uh, I, I've been saying for like the last five years to Scott, when you're going to have me on to talk about McFicker? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll fit that in sometime. We'll fit that in sometime. And he never has. So Scott, when I'm back from hiatus, make it happen. But anyway, so yeah, Charlie from Stinking Boys in Real Britannia will be uh, on to talk about White City as an album because I know he's a big Pete Townsend and Who fan. And we'll talk about the Richard Lowenstein film as well to put music into that context and as for see here when we're back and i know that like tim had to take a few months off in hiatus so for a while it was as you know it was myself and bernie plus wherever we could get someone else we'd get them and i think the um uh what you want for our 100th episode it took us eight and a half years to get to 100 episodes but we did amadeus with your wonderful self and with the wonderful will smith from the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. I'd waited like 100 episodes to actually get him on. I know that Will's a big fan of uh, Fellini, and I think I'd asked him a few years ago. I'd asked him a few years ago to come on and talk about orchestra rehearsal. And he said, oh, I've not heard of, I've not heard of that Fellini film. I said, well, you're a fan of Fellini. Come on, and we'll talk about that. And he never had, so I had to um, I had to get him on to talk about um, Amadeus. So uh, the two of you, plus um, myself and 
Bernard. And that was that was wonderful fun. But I've done one more episode of See Here since then, but that's when we went into hiatus. The next film that we're going to do, which we would have done if we hadn't gone into hiatus, was a Bruce Beresford film, Tender Mercies, with Robert Duvall. I'd heard of the film, had never seen it. I'd seen the VHS tape, and I remember it actually being out of the cinema back in the day, but never seen it and really went in knowing nothing about it. So I have watched it, and yeah, there's there's a million directions you can go in with that with that film. So um, that'll that'll be the next thing when we're back. Tender mercies, but when we're back, I don't know. But one thing, if there's anyone out there who is a fan of either show, and thank you very much if you are, the good news is we will be back. We can't be on hiatus forever. I love doing those shows so much, and the best thing about doing those shows is it's introduced me to other film and music fans just we can shoot the shit like this about the things that we love from across the world you know i i work with people who are they like a film but they're not mostly you know like huge film fans or anything like that so podcast has introduced me to people like yourself and people like terry frost and will smith and charlie mahoney and scott bips and scott clickers and all these great people and just say hey you want to want to have a conversation and then we'll record it and let other people listen to it that's been the brilliance of podcasting so i can't stay away from that forever i love doing it so once hiatus is over those are the shows that we're going to do the first up so once again thank you so much mike for um for being a champion for uh, our shows and uh, spreading the word and it was a real privilege and a treat to meet up with you in toronto a few years ago we had a great meal with with will and Scott Clickers and and you know, meeting Andrea and my family. It was just it's a wonderful night. So yeah, I was really glad you could was, meet your family. As I think we're having a dis. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was great. We could have the. As I think we discussed, like by typing a few weeks ago, that at least in our community, in our film community, there's no big egos. You know, which is really goes against the grain of what Ego Fest is about. Everyone helps each other out. Oh, can I get you this guest? Yeah, sure. Uh, oh, do you need this book or you need this access to this record? Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll help you out with that. People just help each other out. So I love podcasting and really it's been, it's been brilliant doing that sort of thing. And so thanks for inviting me into EcoFest where we just had this wonderful conversation. All right, folks, it's time for the reading of the Patreon list. Thank you so much to everybody who has given to the projection booth. This is the most up-to-date list as of the day that I am recording this, which is January 8th, 2023. One final touch before we go live with this Ego Fest episode. Got a special message to the first three people on the list. Mike Trubiano, Kristen Von Schack, Jennifer L. Kello. Please choose a tier. Make sure you're getting the right stuff here. When it comes to Patreon, you might be missing out on some things. Kyler Fay, he's not missing out on anything. He's in that lone regional manager position. That's why he gets to come on the show, pick a movie once a year, gets all the updates... Gets early access to every episode with a minimum amount of commercials, 
it gets access to the Dropbox just filled with all of the old episodes. Kyler Fay, one hell of a guy. Not to be outdone by Andrew Hendrickson, Jordan Nash, Peter Rogers, Ludo Round, Vaughn Kuhlmeyer, Jessica Shires, my boys at Ready Weight Ball, what what? Alice Kish, Andre Idu, Urban Green, John Adam, Brian Tessitore, Dallas Novell, Alan Goldhammer, David Kobusen, Daniel Davis, James Grant, Catherine Connell, Stephen Byrne, The Journey Amnestite Podcast, John Jenks, Pencilero, Conrad Silas, Kay Lynch, Judith Main, Winter Tyson, Stuart Rankin, Victor Laval, Tito Wickland, Eric Luther, Fjorn Unar, Joseph Goss, Wish Dragon, Jonathan Hart, Sam Deegan, M, Royal Ross, Douglas Stewart, X Monkey 76, Noel Thingval, Richard Wellens, Cade Gaplin, Jason Jeffers, Edwin G. Pettit, JJ-A, Nathan Linker, Jeremy Lemos, Zachary Clute, Culture Shocked, I know that guy, Robert Spencer, Dusty McGowan, Gabe Weiser, Faisal Azam Qureshi, sorry Faisal, Nico Schmidt, P.T. Ryan, Colin Gallagher, Dylan Davis, Mark Peterson, Thiago Barbosa de Miranda, Bobby Power, Gabriel Martin, Third Wheel Legend, Jonathan Melville, Sam Sanchez, Drew A. Yavor, Chris Martz, David Springfield, R.W. Lovejoy, Bob Vickers, Craig Rogers, Paco Abril Francesque, Maureen Jolie, J.A. Perhaps it's Yah. Justin Whiteman, Heather Drain, Chris Cooling, Robert K. Kyle Weiler, Stephen Casey, Harold Wallen, Gray Cat, Wake Up Heavy, Martin Johansson, Patrick Lohmeyer, Ed Green, Michelle Sockers, Todd Martin Cobbler, 
David Bullock, The X-Cast, Nick Barsak, Monica Sheets, Lutz Backer, Susan White, Sharon Bat, K.L. Young, Paul Simpson, Hugh Beauchard, Jim Stevens, Kenny Siegel, David Bertrand, Jason Kaufman, Alastair Montgomery, Jim Lekskowski, Daniel Dahl, Brian, Kilsebub, Kai Clear, Christine King, Mike Crate, Ode O'Malley, Darren Williams, Morris, Brian Holt, David Hart, Alan Ricks, Michael O'Connor, Mark McGillicott, David Wolf, Thomas Ronka, Stewart, Nicholas Grebius, The After Movie Diner, Boots Century, Bill Ackerman, Tony Hudson, Eric Highgraph, Shane Hamilton, Myrna, Matthew Clark, Antti Halopainen, Skiz Sizik, Alvin Akarma, Mick Brooks, David Jowden, and John Redford. Thank you so much, everybody, for being a part of the Patreon, giving whatever you can. It's always appreciated. Don't forget, if you bump up to that $5 level, you get monthly updates. If you go up to the $10 level, you get to have early access to every episode. Going up to projectionist level, you're going to be able to choose a movie a year. Same thing happens with manager and regional manager. Regional manager gets to come on the show. Managers, you guys get a copy of my book, Impossibly Funky, a Cashier's to Cinemart collection. I'm sure there's other stuff that I've thrown in there as well. So thank you, everybody, for making the show go. I want to thank Morris Bershtinsky for stopping by and asking the questions that folks wanted to hear. Thank you, especially to the people that sent in questions. Much appreciated. If I don't have questions not going to do another ego fest. That's just how it goes. So unless I got something really important to talk about and right now it's kind of few and far between. Well, thank you so much, everybody. Keep the dirty side down, the shiny side up, and I will talk with you again soon. (laughs) 